Thank you so much, Jeff and uh, Brian, for sharing with us what a great encouragement that was and what a great opportunity we have as a church to be a part of that ministry. We'll get right into the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the third chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, we're continuing our study of this great epistle. And let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And I want to bring to you a message this morning entitled, Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Let's start reading in verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Please be seated. You'll remember from last week that we learned a basic truth as we looked at verses 4 to 9 of this chapter. And the truth was this. It is the doctrine of justification which leads us to treasure Christ. It is the doctrine of justification which leads us to treasure Christ. In verses 4 to 9, Paul was unfolding to us the glories of the doctrine of justification. He was contrasting the inadequacy of human righteousness with the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. And as he makes this contrast between the inadequacy of a righteousness by works with the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness, which is given as a free gift of God, which is received by faith based purely upon what Christ has accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. As he makes that contrast clear and as he summarizes the doctrine of justification, his heart is led to make this great confession in verse 8 that I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse eight, Paul was saying that everything, everything pales in comparison to the treasure that I have in Christ. In fact, I can look at everything else in my life, every other pursuit, every other goal, every other aim in life, and I could say it is, it is rubbish. It is scubalon, dung, waste, manure, filthy trash in comparison to the surpassing value that I found in Christ that I get to know Christ, and, and knowing Christ means that I have received a righteousness that does not come from within me, but a righteousness that comes from outside of me, a righteousness that is given to me as a free gift of God, not a righteousness 
that I've earned by any works of the law, but a righteousness that I have received by faith in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. It is as Paul unfolds to us the glories and the beauties of this doctrine of justification that his heart is led to confess that Christ is my all-surpassing treasure, that he is my greatest prize, and that nothing in life compares to knowing him. So we could sum up the message from last week in saying that it is the doctrine of justification that leads us to treasure Christ. And I would just encourage you that as a Christian, if you're struggling with dry emotions, if you're struggling with spiritual distraction, if your affections for Jesus are not what they ought to be, if you're struggling with being lukewarm in the Christian faith, I would encourage you to go back to the doctrine of justification. Study these great truths as they are enfolded for us in the word of God. And as your heart marinates in the truth, of your sins nailed to the cross with Christ, Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift of grace, you will be led to treasure Christ as Paul did and to say that Christ is my all-surpassing treasure. Well, this morning we want to take our thoughts one step further. If last week we learned that it is the doctrine of justification that leads us to treasure Christ, this morning we want to see that treasuring Christ leads to pursuing Christ. Treasuring Christ leads to pursuing Christ. In other words, if your heart confesses with Paul in verse 8 that Christ is my all-surpassing treasure, that nothing in life compares to knowing him, that he is my greatest prize, that everything else is rubbish, scubalon, dung, in comparison to the value of my relationship with Christ. If your heart has been led there through the glories of the gospel, in the doctrine of justification, then the natural fruit that will be born in your life will be a diligent and relentless and disciplined pursuit of Christ. Treasuring Christ will lead to pursuing Christ. What Paul says in this passage is that I'm pursuing Christ. I'm pursuing Christ. Two times he says in this passage that I'm pressing on. He makes clear in this passage that I haven't attained a perfect knowledge of Christ. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've planted churches. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I've written scripture, but I haven't attained to a perfect knowledge of Christ. I want to know Christ more. I'm pressing on to know him. I'm leaving what lies behind. I'm pressing forward to what lies ahead because I want to know Jesus more. And we see in this text that treasuring Christ leads to pursuing Christ. The natural fruit of the doctrine of justification is that our heart's affections are moved to value Christ. And then the natural fruit of those affections is a diligent and disciplined pursuit of Christ because the truth is we just want to know him more. I mean, we've just tasted of what it, how sweet it is to know Christ. We've tasted of the treasure, and when you taste of the sweetness of, of knowing Christ, all it does in your heart is you just want to know him more. It creates a spiritual appetite in your soul, and what we see in this text is that Paul had this holy dissatisfaction with where he was spiritually. As much as he knew Christ, he just wanted to know Christ more, and that gave rise to a diligent pursuit of Christ in his life. 
You know, brothers and sisters, I just, I just share with you this morning that somehow in our Christian life, we have so many distractions, so many things going on. I got four kids. They're all starting school tomorrow. We got so many activities, so many things going on in our lives. And somehow, brothers and sisters, somehow for our joy and for our good and for the health of our church and somehow for the sake of the gospel, we have to get back to this fundamental, simple focus of just knowing Christ. I'm just saying, I have a relationship with Christ and I just want to know him more. Somehow we have to get away from being Martha's who are just worried and distracted about so many things, just running around with our heads cut off, just doing, involved in so many activities and we have to, we have to get the spirit of Mary who just saw that it's knowing Christ. That's what it's about. That's what life is about. It's just knowing Christ, just sitting at his feet. It's just abiding in him. Resting in him, walking with him, knowing him, drawing near into a relationship with him. Somehow, brothers and sisters, with all that's going on in our lives, we have to get back to this simple focus. That our hearts are just to know him. That he is the most precious possession in our lives. And we just want to worship him, love him, learn from him, abide in him, receive from him. That's, he is it. This, this is all what it's about is knowing Christ, and somehow we have to get to this holy dissatisfaction with where we are spiritually, and we have to leave what lies behind, and we have to leave the bad, and we have to leave the good, and we just have to say, you know what? God wants me to know Christ today. God wants me to pursue Christ today. I wanna know Christ more today. I may have known him in the past, and I may have had great experiences and great privileges, but I want to leave all that behind because today, right now, I want to press on to know him more. In John 17, 3, Jesus said that this is the essence of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In John 10, 14, Jesus described his sheep this way. He said, I know my own and my own know me. Somehow we have to get back to this as a church, that we are just pressing on to know Christ. That people ask us as a church, what are you about? We just say, you know what, we, we're about Christ. We just want to know him. And if you need help with this, what we're gonna see in this text is three basic elements of Paul's spiritual pursuit. Three basic questions that Paul answers regarding how he pursued his relationship with Christ. And they'll just be real simple points. First of all, we'll see the what of his pursuit. Second, we'll see the how. And third, we'll see the why. So the three questions I wanna answer this morning is what was Paul pursuing? Second, how was he pursuing it? And thirdly, why was he so passionate about it? Let's look first of all at the what of spiritual pursuit. Why, what was Paul Pursuing. Well, he tells us in verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. Paul summarizes his entire purpose in life in that one sentence. I want to know Christ. And that clause, by the way, is a purpose clause. It is connected to verse 9, which is a summary of justification. What Paul is saying here is that the purpose of justification is that I may know Christ. In other words, justification has an end that is beyond itself. 
Justification is not the end. Justification is a means to an end. And the, the purpose of justification, the reason why God has imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is so that we may enjoy a relationship with Christ. We have been saved unto a relationship. And Paul says that my purpose in life is the purpose of justification that I may know him. I just want to know Christ more. Now the question would be, well, what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to know Christ? I remember back in youth group, I used to go to those crazy youth camps and they were just uh, not very biblically discerning, I guess. And we used to stay up late at night, 3 a.m., and sing campfires by the song. And I felt like I'm knowing Christ because I'm delirious and we're eating marshmallows and everyone's crying. And this is such a spiritual experience and I feel warm fuzzies in my heart. And that's knowing Christ. And people have a lot of different ideas of what the knowing Christ means. I mean, for some people, it's just, I feel nice about Jesus. I just, I just have nice thoughts about him. And for some people, it's, it, it is just having an emotional experience at church or going to retreat and getting a spiritual high. What does it mean to know Christ is the question. Well, Paul tells us what it means in verses 10 to 11. And four words are gonna summarize the, his explanation of what it means to know Christ. They, the first word is power. Power. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul says that knowing Christ means that I'm experiencing more of God's power and it is the power of God that is working in my life to draw me into relationship with Christ and to make me more like Christ. It is God's power that is working in our lives. Drawing near to Christ isn't something that we labor in our own. It is God's power that is working in our lives and what Paul says is that I wanna experience the power of his resurrection. That is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is working in my life. So the first word that, that's in this text is power. The second word is suffering. Suffering, he says, and may share his sufferings. There's an abrupt transition from power to suffering. And you might be saying, Dan, I don't see the connection between power and suffering until you realize that in the Bible, God's power is seen most often in our sufferings. It is when we are afflicted and when we are going through trials, it is when we're being persecuted and insulted that God's power is seen most clearly in us. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. God's power is seen in our sufferings. And what Paul says here in verse 10 is I want to experience the, literally the koinonia, the fellowship of his sufferings. As I suffer on behalf of Christ and as I lay down my life for the sake of the gospel, I experience a unique communion with Christ. I experience this fellowship, this sharing in his sufferings. And so the power of God is working in my life and I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel and I'm entering into a unique relationship, a unique fellowship with him. And the third word in this text is conformity. There's power, there's suffering, and then he says there is conformity, verse 10, becoming like him in his death. See, Dan, what does that mean? That's sort of a strange phrase. What does it mean to become like Jesus in his death? Well, it's nothing new. In chapter two, verse five, 
Paul said to the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death. Paul is saying that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Jesus went from earth and he went to the cross and he tells the church, I want you to have this mindset. I want you to have the same humility that was in Christ, laying down your rights, laying down your privileges. And in this way, he tells the church, I want the church to be conformed into the likeness of Christ's death. And Paul says here, that's my heart. I want to become like him in his death. I want to follow the path of humility that he laid before me. I want to give up my rights and privileges. And I want to become a servant and slave to all. So the first word is power. The second word is suffering. The third word is conformity. And then the fourth word is resurrection. Resurrection. Verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul looks forward to the future event of the believer's bodily resurrection from the grave. There's coming a day in which believers in Christ will be raised from the grave. Our spirits will be joined to perfect, glorious, new, resurrected bodies, and we will be with the Lord forever and ever. And Paul says, I am stretching toward that end. I am living my life in light of the resurrection. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul explains that this future resurrection of believers will occur at the time of the rapture of the church. He says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And here's a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's two groups of believers in that text. The first are those who are alive, and the second are those who are dead. What Paul says happens at the time of the rapture is that those who are dead, who have already died in Christ, will be resurrected and be fit with new resurrected bodies. And those who are alive will be caught up together to be with Christ. They will be rapturo, the Latin meaning caught up. And together they will join with Christ in the air. And Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. Paul says, I am living my life in light of that future day. I am looking forward and anticipating the future resurrection which is to come. And he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That phrase, by any means possible, indicates some sort of uncertainty in Paul's heart. He's not uncertain about the the reality of the resurrection, but he may be uncertain about the exact details surrounding the resurrection. He may be expressing uncertainty. I don't know which group I'm going to be a part of. Am I going to be those who are alive and caught up to be with the Lord? Or am I going to be, have died in Christ and be resurrected? And so those are the four words that Paul uses to define what it means to know Christ. They are the words power, suffering, conformity, and resurrection. Now I looked at this text and I said, you know, if somebody asked me on the street, what does it mean to know Christ? I doubt I would have given them those four words. Someone said, Dan, what does it mean for you to know Christ? Well, you know, I had a quiet time this morning, and I felt real, real good about what, what I learned, and, and I feel like I know Christ. But I would have a tough time explaining to them, well, what it means to know Christ is power, suffering, conforming to resurrection, and yet this is the explanation Paul gives as to what it means to know Christ. 
And the basic truth, what, what I think he's saying here is this, is that knowing Christ is more than an isolated experience. It is a comprehensive approach to life that affects every part of our lives. It, it affects how we view life. It affects how we view time. It affects how we view our place in this world. It affects how we view relationships. It affects our attitudes and suffering. It affects, it affects everything. Our tendency is to isolate the idea of knowing Christ to a certain practice or certain experience. What Paul is saying here is that knowing Christ is, is all of life. It's all of life. I'll ask those of you who are married, that's, that's our marriage, right? I mean, when I say I know my wife in marriage, I don't just know her at Monday night when we have date night from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock. I just know her during those three hours. No, knowing my wife, being married to her, affects every part of my life. It affects where I live, it affects how I spend my money, it affects how I view my relationships, it affects my status, and it affects everything. And what Paul is saying here is that knowing Christ is a comprehensive way of life. It affects all of life. And I think what he's saying there is this. If you're having trouble, you're saying, Dan, I don't see the connection. It seems like he's jumping from thing to thing. He's going power, suffering, conformity, resurrection. Where are we here? What is this? How does this all mix together? Let me try to simplify this for you. What Paul is saying here is that he sees his life as being lived in between two great events, and those two great events are the two great resurrections in Scripture. He sees his life in the middle, looking back to the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of Christ. And he draws from that resurrection the power that is available to him from God. And then he sees his life looking forward to the second resurrection, the resurrection of believers, his resurrection from the grave, and he's living his life in between these two great resurrections, drawing from the first resurrection, anticipating the second resurrection, and because he is living his life in that tension, then he says in the present time, as I live my life here, I'm just laying, my life for this, laying down my life for the sake of the gospel. I'm just sacrificing everything in order that I may serve Christ and serve others. I'm being conformed to Christ in his death. I'm fellowshipping with him in his sufferings. And the basic thing that Paul is teaching us here is that knowing Christ and becoming like Christ are really very much interrelated. It's not that we know Christ on this part of our lives, and then we, be, we work to become like Christ in another part of our life, but it's, it's one and the same. And again, the analogy for, for in marriage is the more you know your spouse, the more you become like your spouse, the more you think alike and have the same attitudes. And so Paul is saying that this is what I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing the knowledge of Christ, and I'm not just pursuing him as an add-on to a lot of other pursuits, I'm pursuing him at the, in the, is the basic fundamental relationship that defines everything in my life. And the question that this text would ask us is that, is that our view of knowing Christ? Do we view the, the pursuit of knowing Christ as something that affects everything, that, that it is the one thing that we do 
and then everything else in our lives is an expression of knowing Christ? Or have we somehow taken the idea of knowing Christ to be an add-on? It's just kind of like the, the cherry on top of the Sunday of everything else is going, that's going on in our world. Are we pursuing Christ in a way that affects all of life? Well, that's the what of Paul's pursuit. What was he pursuing? He was pursuing the knowledge of Christ in a way that transformed every aspect of his life. And the second question that he answers is the how. The how. If you say, Dan, I, I understand, okay, the what is to pursue Christ, but, but how do I do this? How do we attain to a greater knowledge of Christ? Well, Paul shares his heart with us in verse 12. And he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think we would answer the how question in saying that Paul pursued Christ with a relentless intensity. Paul pursued Christ with a relentless intensity. His heart's affections gave rise to a disciplined, to an intentional pursuit of Christ in all of life. And he says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. What is the this? It is the, the perfect knowledge of Christ that he will attain to at the time of the resurrection. He says, I haven't already obtained this. I haven't already been made perfect. There are some who might have thought, Paul, you don't need to pursue Christ. You're more spiritual than all of us. You can just coast the rest of the way. And Paul says, put that away. That's not my attitude. And two times in this text, he uses the term, I press on. I am pressing on. The Greek term dioko can be translated to pursue or even to persecute. It describes a relentless pursuit of an object in view. Paul used this term in chapter 3 verse 6 saying, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I once relentlessly pursued Christians in order for harm. And now I am relentlessly pursuing a deeper knowledge of Christ. Paul emphasizes again that he has not attained a perfect relationship with Christ. He says, not that I have attained this. Brothers, I, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And then he says in verse 13, one thing I do. That's a staccato exclamation in the Greek. It literally reads, one thing, exclamation point. I have only one thing in life, and that is to press on to know Christ. You talk about single-minded people. You talk about one-track minds. This was Paul. This type of single-mindedness is one that we should pray for, we should strive after. You know, think of the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 11. And I can relate so much to this. He said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then I love how he prayed this. He said, unite my heart to fear your name. 
And what he meant by that is, Lord, my heart's just in so many different places. My heart's just here and it's there and my affections are everywhere and I'm distracted and I've got so many places uh, that I'm thinking about. And Lord, I just want you to pull all the pieces of my heart together and I want you to unite my heart so that it's single, so that I have one passion, one love, one goal, one aim. Paul says that this is how he approached life. He says one thing. I do. I press on for the goal of the prize of knowing Christ. He's learned in this text that Paul sees no place for lethargy or stagnation in the Christian life. If your doctrine of justification has led to a stagnation or passivity in your spiritual walk, then you have not understood the doctrine of justification biblically. Because the justification leads to treasuring and treasuring leads to pursuing. And so the doctrine of justification properly understood in the Bible will lead to a disciplined and intense pursuit of Christ because we love Christ. And Paul says, I'm pressing on. I'm pursuing Christ. I'm leaving what lies behind. And I am straining forward to what lies ahead. That's a, that's a very graphic Greek term. It describes a runner whose body is stretched out toward the finish line, his muscles exercised to its maximum limit, his eyes fixed on the, the line of the end of the race. And he says, I am straining forward to know Christ more. This was... Paul's favorite description, by the way, of the Christian life. His favorite description of the Christian life was that of a race. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. In verse 26, he said, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And Paul uses the same imagery in this text. I am running an athletic contest, disciplining my mind and my body and my soul and my spirit to strain forward in order to gain the prize, which is a deeper relationship with Christ. You will note Paul says that as he runs this race, he's forgetting what lies behind. And I believe that this applies to both bad things and good things. I believe that when Paul says, we need to forget what lies behind, he's, he's saying, you know, when it comes to, some of us, it's, it's our sin that's keeping us from pursuing Christ. It is the shame and the guilt of sins that we've committed in the past. And what I'd say to us, brothers and sisters, is that if we are carrying around that guilt and shame of our sins, we will not be running in an unhindered way. We need to deal with our sins. We need to repent from our sins. We need to confess our sins. And then we need to claim the promise of God in 1 John 1, 9. God says that if you confess your sins, then God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to believe that promise. We need to understand that when we are questioning the God's forgiveness of our sins, that we are questioning the faithfulness of God. 
because he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. And we need to take all the sins that we have committed and we need to bring them to the cross. And then, brothers and sisters, having brought our sins to the cross, we need to leave them there. And we need to trust in the sufficiency of Christ's atonement to cover and to cleanse us from all sins. And then we need to forget what lies behind and to press forward to what lies ahead. But I believe that this 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 idea of forgetting what lies behind not only relates to the, the bad things we've done, but it also relates to the good things we've done. What would have hindered Paul in his pursuit of Christ is if he just rested on all the good things that he had done. If he had rested on his spiritual laurels, if he, if he said, I'm an apostle and I've seen Jesus Christ and I've been to the third heaven and I've preached here and there and so I don't need to pursue Christ. But he says, you know what, I'm just forgetting all of that because God wants to do something in my life right now. And all the past grace that he's given me is a tremendous blessing. But God wants to do something in my life today. And so he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I have a goal in life. And he also says, I have a prize in life. And the goal and the prize were the very same thing. They were knowing Christ. To experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ. What was Paul pursuing? was pursuing the knowledge of Christ. How was he pursuing it? He was pursuing it with relentless intensity. And brothers and sisters, can I just encourage you from this text? Can I just exhort you from the word of God? That some of us, we just need to get in the race. Some of us are running well and you just need encouragement to just keep running, to keep striving, that you're running well. And by the grace of God, keep trusting, keep looking forward to the future resurrection, keep looking back with confidence to the past resurrection and just keep laying down your lives for the sake of the gospel. Keep running the race that is set before you. Maybe some of us, by the Spirit of God, this is a reminder to you that maybe you feel like you've been sidelined or you're stagnating or you're not growing or you're not being disciplined or, or you're just not growing in your relationship with Christ, your affections are cold, and I'll just encourage you to get in the race. And my encouragement to you from this text is, is that it's a good race. It's a noble race. The, the goal is Christ. The prize is Christ. There are people all over the world who are living their lives pursuing all sorts of vain things, and they're spending everything they have to gain things that will not satisfy. And we as Christians have been given the grace of God to run a race that has a prize and run a race that has a goal, and the goal is to know Christ. It's a good race. It's a noble race. Let's run well. Let's get in the race. Let's leave what lies behind and press forward to what lies ahead. And I don't know what this means for you personally. I'm going to trust that the Spirit of God will apply this to your heart and direct you to consider the areas of your life where you just need to, you just need to get in the race and start fighting the battle. I mean, for some of you, it, it, it may mean that, that you just need to get more disciplined in the Word, that, that you just need to start spending time in the Word of God. Your time in the Word hasn't been what God would want you to be, and you just need to get in the race there and start pursuing Christ. For some of you, it may be a greater commitment to fervent prayer. One of the things I've learned is that prayer doesn't just happen. I, I would, if, if you have a vibrant, healthy prayer life that you are experiencing intimacy with Christ and you can do it with no effort, then can you please disciple me and tell me how you do it? Because I've never been able to do that in my life. 
It doesn't just happen. You need to get in the race. For some of you, it may mean a commitment to service or a commitment to ministry. For some of you, it may mean you just make a greater commitment to come to care group and to fellowship and to encourage each other and be part of the one another so you can build each other up in the knowledge of Christ. For some of you husbands, it may be that you just got to get serious about pursuing your wife and loving her and understanding her and, and growing in a relationship with her. Or some of you wives, it may be that you got that you. It mean you get serious about submitting to your husband and respecting him, and following his leadership. And for some of us parents, it might mean that we. We get serious about teaching our children the word of God. We get home and we crack open a Bible with our kids and we just share with them the things that are precious to our hearts. I don't know how the spirit of God is going to apply this in our life, but my point is not to, to load you down with things to do. That's not my heart. My heart is to say, brothers and sisters, this is a good race. This is a noble race. Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. And if you're sidelined, and if you're not growing, then would you say and just look at the heart of Paul who said that Christ is my all-surpassing value. And if you can't see that yet in your, in your heart and in your life, you're saying, Dan, that just seems so far away from you. Then would you get brothers and sisters to get around you and to pray for you, that your heart would be awakened to see the beauty of Christ and that you would count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing him. It's a race worth running, brothers and sisters. It's a race worth running well, I used to, believe it or not, I used to be in cross country a long time ago. I used to be in cross country. I didn't run fast. I didn't run well, but I did run with intensity. And I ran with intensity because I had a mean old coach who used to, used to yell at us. We didn't run with intensity. But the one thing he told us is that when you run your race, you do not run with your eyes to the side. You do not run looking back. You do not run looking at the floor. When you run your race, you run with your eyes straight ahead, focused on the prize, focused on the finish line. And that is the way that Paul says that he is running his race because he wants to know Christ. The, the what of his pursuit was he wanted to know Christ. The how of his pursuit was he was running a race with relentless intensity. And that brings us to the third point, the last point, which is the why. The why. The question would be, why was Paul so passionate about this race? Why was he so relentless about pursuing Christ? And I just want to draw your attention to verse 12. It's just a single phrase that I, I feel it, was, it just pops out of nowhere and it just turns the tables in this entire text where Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because, and would you note this phrase? He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In the midst of describing his pursuit of Christ, what Paul does is he reminds the Philippians that it was Christ who first pursued him. Paul says, I'm pressing on to know Jesus more. I'm straining forward to grow in him. But it was not me who first pursued a relationship with him. It was Christ who first pursued a relationship with me. It is Christ Jesus who has made me his own. 
Jesus is the initial pursuer. And the scriptures just bear this out, that our pursuit of Christ is merely a response. It is only the natural response of a heart that understands that Christ is the one who has pursued us. John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love, we love, why? Because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Romans 5, 8 says that when we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. You see, Christ Jesus has made us his own. And the way that he did that is he pursued us with relentless intensity. He pursued us with an intensity so great and so glorious, he left heaven to come to earth, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to pay the penalty that we could not pay. And I think Paul could never forgot this. I think his heart never forgot that that he was the one running from God and Christ was the one who pursued him. He says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 that Christ Jesus, my Lord, has judged me faithful, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He says that saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I was the one who was persecuting the church who hated Jesus Christ and Christ broke through my life in the Damascus Road and it is Jesus who first pursued me. And I believe this is what he means when he says, he talks about pressing on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God. He, he mentions the calling of God, the effectual call of God in his life that broke through to his life and, and caused him to believe in Christ. And he says, this call has brought me upward. It has brought me heavenward. It will lead me to heaven where I will spend all of eternity. And his heart never forgot that it was Christ who first pursued him. And I believe that Paul, if he were to share his heart with us, he would say that brothers and sisters never forget that it is Christ who first has pursued us. To never forget the lengths that he's gone to, to never forget the price that he paid, to never forget the grace we have received. It is the grace of effectual calling. It is the grace of double imputation. It is the grace of his righteousness given to us by grace through faith. It is the grace of being called upward to heaven where we will spend eternity. It's the grace of the resurrection which is to come in which we will rise from the grave and be with Jesus forever and ever. Paul pursued Christ so passionately, so single-mindedly, because it was Christ who first pursued Paul. And in verse 15, he ends this passage with a very gracious word to the church. He says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think in this way. In other words, if there's anyone in the church who is spiritually mature, let you Don't think that you have arrived. Don't think that you can rest on your laurels. Think in this way, that you need to leave what lies behind and press forward to what lies ahead. And then in verse 15, Paul ends 
with a very gracious word. And I want you to get this because this is so precious. What Paul does in verse 15 is he anticipates potential disagreement. He foresees that there would be some in the church who may disagree with something he has taught. He anticipates some resistance. And the Philippians were a good church. They were a noble church. But there may have been pockets of resistance in this church. And the way that Paul addresses this potential disagreement is so gracious. He could have forced the issue and used his apostolic authority. But instead he says in verse 15, if in anything you think otherwise. In other words, if there's anything I've said that you don't agree with, that you have a hard time bringing your heart in line with, he says, God will reveal that also to you. I believe this is an example of apostolic restraint. Paul could have browbeat the Philippians into submission. He could have called out those who would disagree with his teaching. He could have asserted his apostolic authority and instead he says, in anticipation of those who would disagree with this teaching, if you don't agree with the perspective that I've just taught, you know what? I'm going to trust you to God. You know, God's going to lead you. God's going to correct you when you need correction. God's going to reveal that to you. I'm just an under-shepherd. My job is to teach you and to share with you and to share my heart with you, to shepherd you, but I'm not the chief shepherd. There comes a point where I can't force the issue. And if you need change in your heart and in your mind, God's going to do that. I'm just going to entrust you to God, that God is going to do the work that I cannot. He says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. If you don't agree with the teaching I've just given, then just be faithful to the teaching that you already have attained. Just be faithful to whatever God has already taught you and then God's gonna lead you. God's gonna guide you. It's interesting from such an intense passage where he speaks so intensely of his personal pursuit of Christ. Paul is at the same time so very gentle and so very gracious with the church. And the passage does not end with strong exhortation. It ends with gracious affirmation. And I think we learn from this passage that there is a time for sharp correction and there is a time for strong instruction. And then sometimes there is a time to imitate apostolic restraint. And just to say to one another, you know what? If you're a Christian, you belong to God and you may not agree and we may not agree, but God's gonna lead you. I'm gonna share my heart with you and I'll do the best I can, but at some point, if, if you're not in line, then Christ, the chief shepherd, he will be faithful to you and I'll just entrust you into the hand of God. You know, that's the spirit that I wanna end this message as we leave this text. It's the spirit that Paul ends his thoughts and it's a spirit of affirmation that, you know, even if you don't agree, God is gonna be faithful to you. And I would say that to you as a church. The cornerstone, God is gonna be faithful to you. You know, some of you, you may be just struggling with something that I've taught this morning. You may be just saying, you know, Dan, my heart seems far away. I mean, I mean you're talking about running a race with intense discipline and, and, and man, I'm, I'm like not even run walking. 
I'm not even jogging. I, I just need to take some baby steps. And what I'll say to you is, if that's where you are spiritually, then you know what? God's gonna be faithful to you. God will get you there. Just be faithful to the teaching you've already attained to. God will work on you. He will correct you. He will work in your life. The power of God will sanctify you and draw you to Christ. As your pastor, I would place you and, and your spiritual welfare in God's hands. And I trust that you would do the same. Let us live up to the truths we've already attained. Let us trust in the faithfulness of God to lead us into all the rest. And let us see the heart of Paul, that his heart was to leave what lies behind, to press forward to what lies ahead. Let us pursue Christ, because Christ has first pursued us. Would you join with me in a word of prayer and let's close our time together. Our Father, we do thank you so much for your word and for how it leads us and encourages us. And we thank you for, Lord, just the privilege of running this race, the race of the Christian life. We thank you that this is not a fruitless race, Lord. We see so many people around us who are running races that have vanity at the end, and yet you have given to us the privilege of running a race in which Christ is our prize, in which Christ is our goal. Lord, help of each of us trust in your grace, Lord to sanctify us and to draw us into relationship with Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us. Lord, Holy Spirit, I just ask you right now to minister to each individual believer here and make specific, practical application of these truths in each heart.